0: My name is Phil Kleiger, and uh, it's noon at WSCA Portsmouth Community Radio, 106.1 FM, WSCA L.P. Portsmouth, WSCA FM.org. It's Wednesday, it's noon, and you know what that means. It's time for the Economic Warrior.
1: My money. Money. I
0: get money from you. in the bank. Young money. Money money
1: money money. I'm as bad as hell and I'm not gonna take this anymore.
0: World-renowned financial advisor and best-selling author Barry James Dyke will arm you with the truth. This is the economic warrior. Please note, the opinions expressed on this show are the individuals who speak them, and not necessarily of Portsmouth Community Radio, its members, or Board of Trustees. And welcome to the Economic Warrior. Uh, today, Barry is in Colorado, and on the phone, Will Pierce's special guest is Terry
1: Hayes. Will, say hello to Terry, please. Hey, Terry. Well,
2: are you there? Hi, Will.
1: Hi. Um, well, we'd, uh, we thought we'd interview you today and uh, see what uh, see about your race for governor. Um, could you could you tell us about yourself, uh, and uh, what was your background before you became a, a legislator?
2: Well, thank you, Will. Sure. I'm a native Mainer. Grew up in the greater Portland area. I, um, I've had a very, well, I would say a varied career. I've worked for a meaningful length of time in the three different branches of Maine state government, uh, different roles over the years. I've also owned and operated uh, two businesses one of which I sold when I was done with it, the other one I closed. Um, I served in the state legislature for eight years. Maine has term limits that only allow you to serve four consecutive two-year terms, and I finished my last turn up, term up in 2014, and I had served in the legislature as a partisan, as a member of the Democratic Party, but I unenrolled at the end of my last term and ran to be the first and uh, successful to become the first independent state treasurer in the state of Maine. In Maine, uh, we elect our state treasurer, our attorney general, and our secretary of state um, by the legislature. So there are 186 voters, and they get to choose those three professionals every two years, every new legislature. And for the first time in 2014, uh, we elected an independent, that'd be me. as The first time, the the majority party did not elect one of their own we became a state back in eighteen twenty, and I was able to uh, put together a, a coalition again in twenty sixteen to win re-election as independent state treasurer. And oh, so you got bipartisan next governor.
1: Hmm. So you got bipartisan support in your election as a as a state treasurer. Yes. Yeah, and uh, so you said you were part of the three different branches of uh, of government. The, the executive, that would be a treasurer, and then a, as a legislator, you were part of the legislative branch. And uh, what was the other branch? Uh, well,
2: you know? actually, the, um, I, no, I worked in the court system as oh. an, an advocate in child custody cases. I did that for over 28 years. Um, hmm. and sometimes as a volunteer and other times you know, as a paid advocate in divorce and post-divorce action. I worked in the executive branch for the Maine Real Estate Commission back in the late 80s and early 90s as their education director. That's the that's in the executive branch, and then I served for eight years in the legislature. The treasurer's role sits outside of the three branches. It's elected by the legislative branch, but but technically, once you're elected, you really don't have a boss, and you sit outside of the three branches and responsible for stewardship of of all the money that comes in and goes out of the state coffers. Hmm.
1: So when is this election?
2: Uh, November sixth.
1: Hmm. And uh, on this uh, ballot this time around. Uh, we're going to have some – the ballot's going to look different uh, than, it, than it has. Uh, we're going we're to have ranked choice voting. Uh, could you tell us what that is?
2: Ranked choice voting is an opportunity for the voter when, when there are more than two choices. Uh, the voter can, can identify their first, second, third, fourth choices, depending on the number of candidates. Um main voters have um, approved the adoption of a ranked choice voting system and twice we've had to, you know, had to twice voted on it at the polls. It won't be in play in the governor's race in Maine, but it will be in play in the two uh, congressional races. We have two congressional districts in Maine, and um, there are there's a Democrat, a Republican, and at least one independent in each of our congressional districts. So those, when folks vote for um, their representative to Congress, they will have the opportunity to use ranked-choice voting. We have one of our senators is on the ballot uh, this time around as our U.S. senators, and there will be ranked-choice voting in that race. It will not be available in the governor's race or in the state legislative races, the Senate and the House, state Senate and state House.
1: Well, uh, why why is that? Uh, wh- wh- I mean, the voters voted for it twice. And uh, and uh, still, uh, we can't uh, we can't have it in the governor's race.
2: Um, uh, Well, the state, the Senate, the state Senate asked the Maine Supreme Court for an an opinion to the constitutionality. This is the state constitution. Does the state constitution uh, allow for ranked choice voting? That question was asked and. The Supreme Court, the Maine Supreme Court, opined that, that, unanimously that the Constitution would have to be amended in order for ranked choice voting to be used in the three elections. There were only three elections that are addressed in the Maine State Constitution, that for, for the governor of the state of Maine and for the state house and the state senate. So, the, so our court said we'd have to amend the Constitution in order to use it for those races. But the other races, the federal races and primaries, you know, the party primaries, those are not mentioned at all in the state constitution. So we can use ranked choice voting in those uh, races. But we, uh, we'd have to amend the constitution to do it in the other three. And in Maine, the only way a constitutional amendment has to start in the legislature, and two-thirds of the legislature in both houses have to support it in order to put it on the ballot for the voters. And there is not a two-third majority in um, either body in the state legislature that would support putting ranked choice voting, uh, you know, putting an amendment to the Constitution, at least not yet. We have to keep working on that.
1: Well, most of the legislators are either uh, Democrats or Republicans, and there's maybe five or six or seven uh, independents. Um, but what is, the, um, what is the political landscape like in Maine? Uh, how many— um, how many Democrats and uh, Republicans do you have, and how many in, uh, unenrolled or independent voters are there, and in, in Green Party?
2: Are you Are you speaking well in the um, in the electorate among the voters? Uh, yeah, or m- mean, among the entire um, voters. Uh, elected officials in our legislative body.
1: Yeah. Well, you no, know, among the entire voters, I, I think if you had um, if the unenrolled were a party, uh, they would be the largest party, right?
2: Uh, they would be. There are, there are more unenrolled voters in Maine than there are Democrats, and there are more Democrats than there are Republicans. So, um, but, but interestingly enough, people are, are unenrolled for a variety of reasons. Um, some of them just never affiliated with a party and don't choose to. You know, others, others unenrolled because their party was too conservative or too liberal for them. You know, there's a variety of reasons. So there's there's quite a spectrum of political philosophy, if you will, among unenrolled voters in Maine. So it's uh, highly unlikely that there would be an independent party. You know, right now, the, the, the implementation of the parties, the partisanship is really a big part of the problem and the challenge that we have in our state government. And introducing an, a third party won't necessarily fix that. Uh, you know, I think this is about... About electing uh, folks that are unaffiliated that can put Maine's best interests ahead of mm-hmm. the best interests of any subset or any particular party within mm-hmm. the state.
1: Do these uh, unenrolled voters they kind of, for their independence, they kind of give up uh, uh, something, don't they? The, the chance to be in a primary. Or?
2: Well, they do in Maine because Maine does not have open primaries. Um, some states do. Maine does not, and you know that's not a, a constitutional issue. That's that's just statute. So that's available and easier to change, but, but when the when the members of the parties are, you know, hold most of the seats in the legislature, it's difficult to bring forth those reforms. And when successfully anyway, we can we can submit them, but it's hard to get them to prevail.
1: Would you think the main voters prefer independence? Uh, because you've had a couple of governors who've been independent.
2: Uh, yes, we have. Maine, Maine's had two independents that have been successfully elected to governor. One of those independents has gone on to be elected as an independent to the U.S. Senate. I think there's a uh, I, I think there's a broad sense in Maine that uh, the voters will you know the majority of voters will vote for people based on the individual, not on their party affiliation. Um, that doesn't mean that there aren't some core. Party members who will always vote the party because there are, but they do not make up a majority of the electorate in Maine. I think that people make their decision based on on their belief and understanding of the individual, their character, what they bring, what they bring to the table. So, uh, so it's we've broken from that uh, political party you know that duopoly if you will a couple of different times interestingly enough in recent this most recent legislature in our house of representatives the number there were two independents that were elected to serve and over the course of the two years five more party partisans withdrew from their party three from the democratic party and two from the republican party so we ended with seven independents and no majority party in the house because the numbers between the Democrats and the Republicans were so narrow that neither of them had seventy-six votes after, oh, so they could, a, they could swing a,
1: they could swing a partisan um, issue, is that right? They could,
2: um, they could. Interestingly enough, again, you know, uh, just taking and looking at those uh, seven individuals, one of whom became a Green Independent, which is a political party in Maine, but the other six were unenrolled, you know, independent with a small I, if you will. Um, You know, they run the political, uh, a philosophical gamut to some extent, but, you know, among the things that they really shared in common was a concern about the process and about the way people are being treated. Um, You know, when you're on a team, a member of a political party and your own party treats you poorly when you see an issue differently, you know, and is disrespectful um, and, you know, you, you stop and ask yourself, why am I doing this this way?
1: Well, what are the, uh, how do they exert pressure, the uh, the party leaders, uh, to people that don't toe the line, to legislators that don't, don't follow their. Well, there's a
2: variety of ways. Um, you know, you could be denied a committee assignment. You can be denied the opportunity to lead or to chair a committee. You can have difficulty um, getting a bill passed. They can actually take a bill and you know, if there's another legislator that submitted something very similar, they can force you to put them together and give it to the other person. Um, they can deny you the opportunity to speak in caucus to try to, you know, share your thought process or your rationale with your colleagues. Um, you know, there are there are a number of ways that that leadership can put pressure on an individual. Hey, they can uh, if you're running for re-election, they can. Uh, not provide any assistance you know they, there's nothing that compels them to help or uh, so you know there are there are ways there there some of them are more subtle than others some of them are procedural but you know none of them are in statute or, or even in rule they're just uh, levers that can be be pulled or pushed in order to generate um, outcomes that leadership wants
1: uh, Maine has a clean ele- uh, clean elections uh, uh, funds. Can you, you tell us about yes. what that is?
2: Yeah, it's a public funding mechanism that's voluntary. It was first adopted; uh, it was on the ballot as a citizen initiative back in 1996, and it was and it was back before the voters. And I would say an upgraded version in 2015 passed handily both times. And it's voluntary. It provides uh, public funding for candidates for the state house, the state senate, and the governor's race um, if you choose. But if you choose to participate in the program, you have some very strict limits on the fundraising that you can do. And you agree to abide by those limits all the way through um, the campaign season. And in order to qualify for the public funding, you have to qualify for the ballot. And you have to solicit $5 contributions to the Maine Clean Elections Fund from registered voters. The concept here is to be able to demonstrate that you have sufficient support to warrant the public funding. So um, I don't, you know, when I ran for the legislature, I used a program in all but one of my races. And the the, uh, threshold amounts have changed since then. But a House member, for example, might have to collect seventy five five dollar contributions from registered voters in their district from either party or independent doesn't matter. Your party affiliation doesn't matter at that point. And that would qualify them for the first um, award, and I think that's somewhere around five, six thousand dollars. And then if you collect additional sets of fifteen more unique five dollar contributions, you can qualify for, you know, another $1,000. I don't know the exact numbers. But then there's a cap. There's a, you can reach the cap. We do that. You, again, it's an option if you run for the state House or the state Senate and then as, uh, in the governor's race. And I'm, there are four candidates that will be on the ballot in the governor's race, and I'm the only one that opted to use that program. And the real value of the program, well, is that like, it's a couple of things. The idea is to try to get big money out of politics. To, so Maine voters have consistently agreed to use their taxpayer dollars to fund campaigns with the hope that it would diminish some of the, the poison that cash ends up being in our political you know, campaign process. The other thing that it does for the candidate is that, you know, I, I'm not sitting in a room on the telephone 20 and 25 hours a week asking for a thousand dollars or fifteen hundred dollars apiece from Mainers and others. Um, I have the opportunity to spend more time traveling across the state, meeting with voters and listening and engaging in conversation with them. and And so which is one of the reasons, the significant reason why I wanted to use the program. I, I want to get big money out of politics. I think it's poisonous to our politics. and I'd much rather spend my time listening and talking to Mainers. Than having to be raising money, you know, for a significant portion of what limited time I have available to campaign. Hmm.
1: Well, as um, now you were assistant to uh, minority leaders, um, and you must have traveled around the state uh, to every, just about every district. Is that right?
2: Well, I did a lot of traveling, but um, much of it was after the legislative session ended, and then we entered the campaign season for two thousand and twelve. Um, Maine's political landscape at that time, which was in summer and the fall of 2012, the, um, majority, the majority party in both our House and Senate were Republican for the first time in over 30 years. And so the Democratic Party, and I was a Democrat at the time, we worked the state hard in that campaign in 2012 in order to earn the majority back. I was, I was working as the assistant leader um, with the leader. In that effort, and we were successful. We we earned the majority back in November of 2012. So there was a lot of travel around the state at that point in time, working to support Democratic candidates to help make that outcome a reality.
1: We, now, um, as as in your position as an assistant uh, minority leader, were you part of the Legislative Council?
2: I'm sorry, but I couldn't hear you. Uh, we're, or, were legislative you... Council, yes. Yeah.
1: And uh, yep. w- w- what's that? Yeah. Uh, what's that council? Uh, what do they do? And uh, how was it in there? Was it a lot of partisan ship? Sure.
2: Um, it's a good question. In Maine, the legislative council consists of the ten elected leaders, um, and, and which will be interesting because if we have a caucus of independents, they may have to add some people to the legislative council. O- okay, um, but uh, the
1: legislative leaders—no, who are they? The legis- when you say the legislative leadership.
2: Each caucus, like, let's, let's do this as if we didn't have any independence for right now. Okay. So it means the House, in, in the main House, there are Democrats and Republicans. If, it, if the Democrats are in the majority, they get to, uh, well, basically control who's going to be the speaker, which is the presiding officer for the body, and they elect a majority leader and an assistant majority leader. So that's three elected leaders. And then the Republicans, if they're in the minority, they elect a leader and an assistant leader. So there are five elected leaders in, in each body, One for, five for the House and five for the Senate. And you put those ten people together, and that's the Legislative Council in Maine. And, and their charge is um, the, uh, there's nonpartisan staff that serve the legislature. Um, You know, we have several different – we have a reference library. We have Office of Policy and Legal Analysis. We have the Office of Fiscal and Program Review. So there's a structure of the – call it an administrative structure within the legislative branch, and the legislative council oversees that structure. They hire the uh, executive director for the legislature, which is a nonpartisan position, um, and, and and so the legislative council is just like the board of directors if you will for that part, of the operations part of uh, the legislature not the political part but what keeps the lights on and makes sure the snowplow gets done and and having heads of those different um, subunits you know hiring the professional staff and there's a budget for all of this so the legislative council is is doing that work that overseeing that administrative work and then, the most significant policy piece uh, comes in the second year of the session. In the first year of Maine's uh, new legislature, a, there are any bill that is submitted gets printed and vetted by a committee. In the second year of, of of the session, the bills have to get through legislative council. So they're supposed to be emergency by definition, and that means you got to have a majority vote of the legislative council in order for the bill. To be printed and then go to committee. So it's there's more political decision making, if you will, in the second year than in the first year.
1: So, Ananda, you mentioned that um, one of the ways that uh, the the party leaders can um, pressure people is to uh, uh, combine. Uh, there, there are thousands of bills that are submitted. Uh, they can combine them and uh, choose who's going to whose name is going to be on the bill. So, is that done in the first session? Um,
2: it can be gotten done in both, um, you know, because there's there's no need to take if you've got two bills that that are essentially the same in terms of the purpose. Then the revisors' office, which is again a nonpartisan support arm within the legislative branch, can uh, through leadership compel the two or three sponsors. It might be more than two to collaborate together on one piece of legislation. And then, you know, there's typically only one lead sponsor, and that's where the, the muscling can go. Hmm.
1: So so you've been working in the legislature a long time. Any particular um, legislation you were proud of? What was your first piece of legislation?
2: Well, the first piece of legislation that I sponsored was one to try to the – comp- the excuse me, the committee that I served on, um, dealt with uh, state and local government and the, the structure of government and, and there were a number of annual reports that we received as committee members and one of them uh, uh, that we get each January told us that we were spending half a million dollars on um, legal ads, noticing committee meetings and rulemaking which I thought was was substantial. I, I was a half a million dollars. It kind of blew me away that it cost that much and uh, given These are ads access in to technology and the fact that you know, publishing on the internet, you don't pay by the column inch, but you do when you do it in the print media. I sponsored a a bill with the help of a Republican on the same committee to um, move the bulk of those uh, of the content of those ads to the internet, so that um, ultimately, I mean, it was it, took, it was a two-year um, proposition. But So we, we reduced the column inches that we needed to pay for to drive the cost down. We cut them by more than half. So there's been ongoing savings from that effort since that time.
1: As a, as a treasurer, uh, you must have the, uh, a fun job of administering the unclaimed funds list. Could you tell us about that?
2: Yes. Um, unclaimed property in, in Treasury in the office in, in for the state of Maine, there are 16 people, including the treasurer, and four of those, so a quarter of my staff is dedicated to the unclaimed property program. Businesses uh, that do business in Maine and have money that they've attempted to return to um, a mayor and they haven't been successful, uh, the, cash, the check didn't get cashed or whatever, that money, depending on what kind of it's payroll, it becomes unclaimed property and needs to be to the state. I, within a year if it's a dormant bank account that has been had no activity it's three years and there are all kinds of different you know descriptions of unclaimed property and so our statute outlines the dormancy period and and so there are big reporting deadlines November we take in between two deadlines one in November and one in May generally around 25 million dollars a year in money that belongs to Mainers that businesses have been unsuccessful in returning to the rightful owner and then we have a very robust um, online presence with our unclaimed property program so Mainers anybody anybody on the internet can search their name and if they find that we have unclaimed property that belongs to them they can file their claim right from the internet we do not charge for this service Um, we've been very very successful for a variety of reasons we work collaboratively with the legislature you know there are 186 people serving on the third floor who are from you know a district some place in Maine and they generally meet with success in getting elected by knocking on people's doors so i've found that they know where people are they know their constituents and and the treasury works with them uh, we share lists with them that they use to help reunite you know, their constituents with unclaimed property. We have a variety of tools um, that we're using. The Internet is probably the most powerful one. But last year, this year, year 18, that ended at the end of June, we returned $18.3 million.
1: Mm, That must have made a lot of people happy. Um, So you've been, uh, you've pledged to no negative advertising. uh, Would your administration um, sort of change the... uh, the way, th- the way things are done in, uh, in Augusta?
2: Well, I think what will change, you know, anytime you're successful and you've done it a different way, people look at that way that they can, they can replicate that success. So well, I intend to be Maine's next governor. I'm using the Clean Elections Program to get there, you know, not taking any money from special interests or, or party interests, being beholden upon my election only to the people of Maine, no particular subset, I'm no big donors. I think you add that to doing it without a negative ad, people hate negative ads. It's what they complain about the most during the campaign season, whether it comes over the airways or in print media, in their mailboxes. Um, you know, um, political operatives use them uh, feeling that, or believing that they impact that, that slight edge. That's what's going to make the difference. Well, I think when we can demonstrate that you can actually win without one negative ad, And using, you know, the limits of the fundraising program, I think we can change what the future elections will look like, because others will look and say, well, gee, there's some real upsides to going at it that way. Um, It's more likely to happen. We have not had anyone successfully use the Clean Elections program in a governor's race yet. So... I intend to be the first, and I fully expect that more people will look to use the program in the future as a result.
1: Hey, Phil, how are we doing on time? Uh, We're
0: doing okay. How about one more question? Um, On the issue of marijuana legalization, uh, it says via your Twitter feed that you will create a reasonable and workable system that protects our youth, restricts underage sales, deters impaired driving and high-risk adult use, and promotes consumer health and safety. How will you turn that into dollars back to the Mainers? Oh
2: Well, interestingly enough, I mean, there's the, the, the public law that the legislature has passed has a sales tax component to it as well as a licensing fee structure. So there will be revenue coming into the state coffers from, this, from the cannabis industry um, as retail sales uh, occur across the state. So there, there is a revenue component to that. The biggest challenge we have is, is the banking for that industry. Because of the conflict, you know, because Maine has legalized recreational adult use of cannabis, and the federal government does not, um, are, it's difficult for cannabis-based businesses to um, uh, acquire banking services because many of the banks risk their federal charter and federal prosecution. Is
0: there a way? Is there, is there so a way? A- is there a way through congressional uh, lobbying that you'll be able to lower that risk for banks to support? A huge industry that could be great for Maine.
2: Well, you know, I I think there's efforts afoot. I certainly, you know, as a member of the National Association of State Treasurers, uh, I've been working with colleagues in other parts of the country that are confronted with the same challenges. Um, We find that the current federal administration and President Trump's administration would rather double down on uh, marijuana and cannabis. So. We're hoping that we may have an impact, impact of change on that, but uh, it, it doesn't look rosy at this point in time. We're trying to find alternatives, it, it's not—it's not in in the best interests of of public well-being to have that continue to be a, a total cash business. You know, cash is tempting and vulnerable. It increases the cost both on the on the management side for the cannabis businesses themselves but it also increases the cost of taking this money in on the public sector side. So um and you know it it reduces our capacity to to use our full taxing powers uh, if you think about it. You know we just don't we don't have access to records and record keeping the same way we would. So I I I'm convinced we'll get there but it, it we could we could experience some considerable pain along the way and trying to work with the vendors and you know those those people people that are building businesses in that industry to make sure that we're doing it in a way that doesn't put them at risk and and maintains the you know appropriate cash flow into the state as a result of the statute.
1: Terry, we um we have to take a break very soon. So how would uh, How would voters uh, support a clean election candidate? Do you you still need these $5 checks?
2: Yes, I do. Um, My website is com. just spelled out, H-A-Y-E-S-F-O-R-M-A-I-N-E.com. Registered Maine voters can contribute $5 by going to the website and clicking on the Contribute button. That money goes to the Clean Elections Fund, but every $5 contribution um, generates $146 to my campaign.
1: Great. So. Well, well, thank you for being our guest today. And, uh, thank you
2: very much for the insight. invite. I really appreciate it.
1: Okay. Sure.